If you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to begin reading at verse 1. The Apostle Paul says this, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. For such a one I will boast, yet myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth, but I refrain lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Unless I should be exalted above measure, By the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that you would use your word today to minister to the hearts of your needy people. Father, for what this past year has brought and what the future will yet bring, Lord, we thank you for the promises contained in your word. May we be granted by faith the ability to lay hold and to receive the joy intended in this text. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you could go back in time one year ago with the knowledge that you have today, that is begin 2023 with the knowledge with which you end 2023, how would you prepare yourself for what was to come? We think about our life here, this relatively small congregation. And for some in your family, there are loved ones who began the year who have now gone on to be with the Lord. There's new life that was conceived in 2023 and have actually now been brought forth in the span of the year. Some have undergone great gains. This has been a terrific year for you. Others have undergone tremendous losses so that Life today, both for good and ill, is quite different than it was a year ago. And so standing here today on the last day of the year, 
As we look at all the days and the weeks and the months ahead, and we no doubt wonder amidst all of our perhaps resolutions of what we are determined to be and to do, well, the Bible tells us we cannot boast of tomorrow for we do not know what a day, let alone a year, will bring forth. And if you could know, if I could tell you what 2024 is going to bring, do you really want to know? You see, those things are hidden from us by God's design. But in hiding those things, God has revealed other things. And he has revealed certain things for our good and for our comfort, for our help and our hope, as well as his glory. So that in coming to the new year, I want to point your attention to a text which has been on my mind in a focused way over the past few months, in particular on my mind in light of what number have endured and some of our friends are currently enduring, as well as in light of Molly's baptism, a young lady who I trust, God willing, will have decades of service to the living God. Now, this section found here in chapter 12, as well as chapter 11, is a very biographical or autobiographical section of the Apostle Paul. So preachers sometimes have debates, should you be biographical in your sermon? Should you ever say anything about yourself? And there are certainly preachers who almost never say anything about themselves. You could listen to hundreds of hours of Martin Lloyd-Jones and know very little about him. Other preachers like Spurgeon are very uh, autobiographical. And Paul is, with the possible exception of King David, the most autobiographical scripture writer. And in few places is he more self-revealing than in speaking about his weaknesses, his frustrations, and his ultimate comfort here in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. As we come to the text this morning, I want to begin by dealing with what I'm going to call the crushing weight of Paul's pain. This is a well-known passage to many of us. It contains a phrase that many of us have used in our lives at various times, the thorn in the flesh. So I wonder how many of you, probably many of us, if not all of us, have had at some point in our life literally a thorn somewhere in our flesh. Uh, it happened to me just recently. I can't even remember exactly where I was, walking somewhere and looked down and, and there were thorns embedded uh, in my clothing around my waist or caught uh, on my sleeve. And how am I going to extricate myself from this uh, without pain? Now, the thorn is an interesting bit of symbolism. Paul does not describe this as a knife in the ribs. In fact, in some, if I came at one of you and I had a knife in one hand and a thorn in the other, you'd much prefer the thorn to the blade. But it's an interesting bit of, of symbolism. Many other metaphors, again, could be used to speak of pain, fire, and other things. But a thorn to my mind, certainly brings a certain symbolism, a biblical symbolism, the curse in the garden, thorns and thistles it will grow, and then our Lord's suffering, the crown of thorns around his brow. 
Now, where was the thorn in Paul's analogy? This is interesting just quickly to think about. Is it in his foot when he thought about there's a thorn in the flesh? This messenger of Satan to buffet me, was it in the foot? That'd be a very bad place for a thorn, a large thorn. And again, we should think of a larger thorn than a <coughs> perhaps a tiny little rose thorn. In the foot, in the hand, it's often seemingly associated with the side, kind of that idea. But the pain metaphor, and this is a pain metaphor, is clear. Whatever it is meant other is meant to symbolize, certainly it is meant to convey acute pain, something that stops you in your tracks. Now, if you want to have some fun, find a group of theologians or people with some Bible knowledge and give them 10 minutes to debate what the thorn was. And many different conclusions, Paul's eyesight is often... Uh, given as a possibility. There are a range of conclusions that people have drawn as to the identity exactly. If it were physical, I'm going to say this. It must have been excruciating. So I, if I were there and I said, okay, Jim, it's physical, kidney stones, hemorrhoids. Something extremely painful, and the pain would have been intense, physical, and debilitating. It was not your run-of-the-mill pain, if we can talk about pain that way. Listen, everybody has their own pain, and, and I don't want to campaign, compare pain to pain and say well, your pain's worse than mine or mine is worse than yours. But I will suggest it was not what I'm going to call your run-of-the-mill pain, as hurtful as that might be. And why do I say that? Well, listen to Paul's earlier autobiographical statement in chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. Paul is contrasting and uh, his labors with that of the false apostles, and he's reluctantly describing how God has worked in him and through him. And he says... In labor is more abundant, talking about his life, in stripes above measure. Now, kids, those stripes are the stripes given by a whip. It's not a fashion statement. In stripes above measure, the times he has been beaten that have left marks on his body. In prisons more frequently. Fascinating statement. In deaths often. Not in death, deaths. That is, this is it. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. So do the math. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. Journeys often in perils of waters and perils of robbers in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness, in toil, in sleeplessness, often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Imagine being in a prison cell. 
And not only without a blanket, but without your clothing, lying on the cold stones of a dungeon. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. So I'm going to say this. Paul was no wimp when it came to pain. Paul's body was an encyclopedia of pain, physical torment. Some of you played football in the past or basketball and you get up in the morning and your knees and your hips and your back are, you imagine having been beaten 120 or so stripes on your back, welts and other painful things. I think any of the painful things that Paul articulates would be enough to crush some of us if one of those things, if one of those things happened to us, that would be our go-to story. A day and the night I spent in the deep. In prisons often, in perils in sea, in perils among false brothers, any one of those things would be a testimony that we would share. Now this pain, this particular pain, this intense pain that Paul is describing is a pain to which he can, he can cite the reason. He knows why it happened. And he says it there in verse 7. Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. So that whatever it was, it was intended to tamper the potential pride that a man like this would have in light of the privileges. He's one of the most privileged men, spiritually speaking, in all of human history. And Paul's just a man, and Paul's not a perfect man, and Paul will talk about his wrestlings and his struggles and his sin. And so uh, the thought that, well, Paul would never be tempted. Well, he's a human being. Of course he would be. And he understood that whatever was happening to him, and again, whatever it was, that its intention was to keep him from being exalted above measure. And he says, a messenger of Satan. Now to me, as I understand this passage now, this offers some hint as to the, not just the, the source of the pain, but the type of pain. Now, I read this text differently having studied it than I did previously. As I understood it in the past, I would have translated it something like this. Unless I should be exalted above measure uh, by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me from Satan. That is, Satan brought the thorn in the flesh. But what I'm suggesting to you is that this messenger of Satan may be the thorn in the flesh. Now, why do I say that? Again, he may be saying that God is using or allowing Satan to inflict pain, to do Paul good. Or he may be saying that the thorn and the messenger are one and the same. So let me give you an alternate translation. A messenger of Satan 
The word here is the word often translated as angel. A messenger of Satan, an angel of Satan, and if that is in your mind, then it may trigger the context of 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15. Again, here in the previous chapter, Paul is painfully defending his love, his integrity, and apostleship to the church that he has planted, a church in which his life and ministry has been undermined by a group of men that are referred to pejoratively as the super apostles. And he says this, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into a messenger of light or an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. So the question I wonder is this, were Satan's messengers his angels, his ministers, that is, his false teachers, his wolves and apostles' clothing, that is, the unendingly wearisome, painful, destructive, heretical workers who constantly undermined him, who constantly badgered him, who followed him everywhere he went and undermined in the lives of people he loved, his integrity, and his apostleship, and who are leading them to ruin. Now, if you had a group of men like that following you, who everywhere you went, every time you said something, every time you did something, they came out of the woodwork and were used by Satan to infiltrate the hearts and minds of your people. I would suggest to you that for a gospel minister and for many of us, that is a pain greater than physical pain. But whatever the case may be, and I will say that most men who grow weary to the point of quitting in ministry don't do so because of physical pain, but spiritual pain caused by human agents. So that the thorn in the flesh may not be a thing, it may be a, a person or people. Now, it's not a definitive, obviously, thus saith the Lord. I give that to you for your consideration. Paul doesn't reveal what it is. Its identity is not, therefore, absolutely crucial. But what does Paul do with this pain? Well, he does what we should all do, right? He takes his burden and complaint to the Lord. Cast your burdens on the Lord. It's what we are told to do. Cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you, the apostle Peter said. Paul speaks in verse 8 of three times... And I think this is better to understand three seasons of intense pleading. It's the word there for parakaleo, the word calling alongside. And in the context, it carries with it here the idea of begging or imploring. It may well be that there were three seasons of fasting and prayer that Paul gave over to this asking the Lord that he might be pleased to send this source of intense pain away to remove the thorn. Take the thorn out of the foot and you're okay. Remove, extricate it from wherever it's causing pain and the pain ends. 
So whatever it was, his pleading is something along these lines. Lord, if this could change, if only I did not have this particular burden and fill in the blank, perhaps in your own life. This pain is so intense. It is so distracting to my life and to my service (coughs) and to my labors. I know it has good purposes. But Lord, I also know that you can end this, that you can take it away. Again, he knew that there were good and necessary reasons for this trial in his life. He's the man who not only knew Romans 8.28, he wrote Romans 8.28. And he knew that the Lord wanted him humble in light of all that had happened to him. He knew that to be a good thing. Again, he had one of the most extraordinary spiritual lives and experiences in human history. The Lord had revealed so much to him, some of it so wonderful that it was beyond his ability to articulate and beyond our ability, this side of glory, to comprehend. So Paul knew these things, but he knew other things. He knew other things that are necessary for us in our trials. We all need to know this. He was keenly aware of God's blessings, and he was keenly aware of the Lord's love for him. Again, he wrote Romans 8, nothing can separate him from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not nakedness, not persecution, not not hardship, not starving. Again, Paul's being, he's not just throwing out suggestions. He's talking about things he had undergone himself in many cases. And he knew that nothing like that could separate him or us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Those things are never in doubt. Those things, as glorious as they are, do not mean that pain is not real and intense. We can't think to ourselves, well, if I could just grasp the love of Christ, then this wouldn't hurt so much. That's not the case. If I could just convince myself that God is working all these things together for good, that's never in doubt. But it still hurts, and in his mind, it is hindering him from being what he believed he ought to be, what was best for him. And he believed, and because he knew the Lord and loved the Lord, he could give to the Lord all that's on his heart, that it would be best for him to have this over with. He did not simply sigh and say, well, God's sovereign. I'll buck up and take it. I've been there. I still wrestle with this in light of my weaknesses. Now, he believed that the Lord could end it, and so he made his argument to the Lord as to why this was not good for him and not good for his life and ministry, and perhaps he could argue that it was preventing God from receiving maximum glory in his life. Now, what we know is this. The Lord did not answer him in accordance with his desire the first time. But he went back. And this is not Paul being cheeky or or bad. Some time passed. was still there. God hadn't taken it away. Gave himself to another intense time of imploring. And again, there was no answer. And so having waited on the Lord, he went again and he pleaded his case. And now, having seen his intense pain, let's consider the comfort Christ gave. 
And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, and my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now these, friends, are words of comfort. This is not the Lord saying, sorry, suck it up. Just deal with it. Paul's life in a fallen world, what do you expect? Life's unfair, and things don't always turn out the way that we want. Why don't you go back and read what you wrote to the Philippians and do all things without murmuring and complaining? It's not what he says. Further, he is not saying, Paul, this is it. It will never change. He's not saying this is how it's always going to be, so you might as well learn to live with it. Furthermore, he's not saying, Paul, you've asked too much. I cannot help you. What he does is he gives a promise and an explanation. The first thing he promised is the promise. It's the well-known statement. Most of us have it memorized. My grace is sufficient for you. Now, what do you think of, what do you think of when you think of grace? Well, we say, well, it depends on the context. In regard to our salvation, the amazing grace that we will sing of in a few moments, we refer there to the merciful kindness of the Lord in light of our sins, the reality that our salvation is not of works, not by our law-keeping, but fully by the graciousness of God. But other times we use the word grace in terms of help or empowerment. So you get done with a task and someone says, God surely gave you a lot of grace. We don't mean they're saving mercy from your sins. But the idea is that there was help and empowerment. And sometimes we'll say, look, brethren, we've got a lot coming up. We're going to need a lot of grace to get through it. And the word charis does, depending on the context, mean different things. It can mean that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, loveliness, goodwill and loving kindness. One has said this, it is the merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon a soul, turns them to Christ, keeps them, strengthens them, and increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and, uh, and kindles them to the exercise of Christian virtue. That's the idea. This is not the Lord saying, just grin and bear it. This is not grim-faced, hyper-Calvinistic fatalism or determinism. This is not a bare, soulless bowing to naked sovereignty. This is not Paul being put in his place. This is the Lord reminding him that there is yet joy in the journey and hope regardless of the circumstance. His word to him is not, Paul, you can take more than you thought you could. It is you can know joy and help in the midst of it. And this is seen in his further explanation. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. 
The verb here, made perfect, has the idea of being accomplished or shown or, or demonstrated. It can mean brought to an end, or that is that it will meet its intended purposes. My strength, the word there, dunamis, the gospel is the power of God, the dunamis, the dynamo of God, my strength. My power is made to be seen, or my power works its way, not through your native strength, but in your weakness and weaknesses. There's a sense in which the Lord is saying, Paul, what, what, do you, what do you really want to see? What do you want your life to be a testimony of? What do you want people to talk about when they think of you? Your cleverness? Your power stats? So that if Paul had an X account or former Twitter account and it had what he could squat and what he could bench or how many books he wrote and honorary degrees he had. Is that what you want people to think about? How many sermons you preach a week? So end of the year, you know, some guys getting online and bragging about how many sermons they did this year. How well did you hold up? How strong did you turn out to be? Is your ministry about you? I mean, do you want people talking about you, your fame, your wisdom, your Competence, Man, look at him. Well, Paul, I know, Jesus could say, that's not what you're about. You have ever and always wanted to exalt me and exalt my grace. And I'm telling you that I could accomplish, I could accomplish that in changing your circumstances. Or I could accomplish that by pouring out my joy and help in what you're enduring. And for now at least for now, that's what I'm choosing. I'm not leaving you in a hole. I'm not handcuffing you. I'm not hindering your life or your ministry. I'm showing you that in whatever comes your way, my grace is enough and my strength will prove sufficient. Now, we, we could say that's all Paul needed to know. He got an answer. He got something Job never got. He got an answer and an explanation. And maybe you're thinking, I wish I could get that answer and that explanation. And I'm saying, you got your wish. You see, Paul does not share this as an exclusive testimony of this is my life and only my life. Paul reveals this answer for our sake. For all the hundreds of tomorrows that will come in 2024, should we make it through the year, all that we will want to change, all that will come and say, I can't do this, his grace, if you're a child of God, will be sufficient. For all the hours that we feel ourselves exceedingly weak, internally or externally, his strength will fulfill its purpose in our weakness. And again, this answer does not mean that things will never change, but it does mean that this will always be true. For even if we are made strong in the way we want to be strong, 
See, I want to be strong by being strong. I want my strength perfected in my strength. That's what I want. But even if we were made strong enough to endure, again, it's only relatively strong and only temporarily strong because that's the reality of all human strength. It is possible to be strong and weak at the same time. And in fact, that is God's good design. So let's conclude with Paul's embrace or what I'm going to call the conclusion that Paul embraced. Second Corinthians 12, 9, therefore, there's Paul's words of conclusion, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. <clears throat> and again, that's part of my rationale that the the thorn in the flesh is not just a physical thing. He talks about reproaches, persecutions, distresses, etc. But he then concludes, for when I am weak, it's then that I'm strong. All right, so full disclosure, if I had any text that I didn't want in my Bible, it's this one. I wrestled with this text, and I still wrestle through it, particularly over the last 12, 13 years when weakness has been my daily companion and pain is my daily reality. And I miss being strong. I struggle with it. I struggle with the bodily weakness and the attendant at times, emotional, mental, and spiritual weakness. I don't want to be weak. And I confess, as I think about the years ahead, I don't want to get weaker. I understand what's being said in this text. The context makes it abundantly clear. And certainly I have rejoiced in all of the times when the Lord's strength has come and helped me when I was very weak. But listen, Paul does not talk about contentment with weakness or bare acceptance of weakness. He's not simply saying, Lord, okay. He's not speaking of mere intellectual understanding. God uses weak instruments. I got to get that into my head. Now, that's, of course, that's true. We have this treasure in earthen vessels or in clay pots. God uses the Gideons and, and even shockingly to us, the Moseses who felt his weakness and his frailty. God uses weak instruments in order that he might receive the honor and the glory that the exceeding power might be seen to be of God and not of us. Paul is saying something more than I get it. He's saying... I enjoy it. It's good. I delight. I delight in it. And he uses a compound word emphasizing goodness. Two words essentially both mean good. It's the same word used in Matthew 3. This is my beloved son in whom I am 
well pleased. I am well pleased. I'm well pleased. If this is how I will know Christ's strength, and if he's not going to use, the, if the stronger I am, the less he's going to use me, if the more glory goes to me and the less to him, then I'm happy. I'm happy that he, it wasn't God saying, it's not really so much God saying no or the Lord saying no. See, Paul says, I want you to remove it. And he says, no, I got something a lot worse for you. I've got more pain for you. It's not what it, you see, in our mind, you know, when God says no, it's like, well, I asked for pizza and he gave me a cracker and told me to be happy about it. It's, I asked for a burger and he gave me filet mignon. That's what he said. This isn't worse, Paul. It's better. It's just better. And that's what Paul is able to say. This, this is how I'm strong. I wanted to be strong, and now I am strong. For my strength rests not in my attainment, but in Christ's power. And when that happens, I, I, I know strength. I, I'm not taking delight fundamentally in weakness. It's not like, oh man, weakness is great. I've never been the greatest thing that's ever happened. What I'm rejoicing in is, is the bypass of weakness to the strength. For too, far too often what I think, when I'm weak, I'm pathetic. And he says, no, when I'm weak, I'm strong, and that strength is not mine, and it does not result in my glory. It's his strength and results in his honor. Right. So again, in other words, Paul's not here being a big boy and taking it on the chin. He's not enjoying the weakness or the lack of strength fundamentally. He's not, um, he's not built that way. He's enjoying the superiority of the joy that comes from Christ showing his glory through him. And so the things he feared and the things he hated and the things he so wanted gone became the means in God's hands of a superior joy. Again, not by the Lord answering prayer the way he wanted God doesn't always answer the pray our prayers the way that he wanted, but he does always answer them in the way that is best. No child of God has ever asked for bread and been given a stone, but they have sometimes been given something better for, than bread. When the Lord answers our prayers the way that we want, that's exciting and enjoyable. But sometimes God answers our prayers by means of a loving alteration of things. And again, it's not so much a no as it is, I have something better. And it's so much better that you will not merely bow the knee and accept it like a good Calvinist, but you'll find joy in it. And that's what comes from a heart that trusts the Lord and sees that he's committed to our best. If this is how the Lord will work strength in me because that's what I wanted, a strength better than my strength. And if that power must come through my weakness and I will not run from that weakness or rage at that weakness 
or complain of that weakness, but by God's grace, I can even welcome it. Why? Because for every need, for every pain, for every trial and disappointment, there will be a sufficiency of grace. And that's what we all need to know. You see, the scroll of our life is unrolled, not like this, but like in a tiny sliver that reveals itself in seconds, in minutes, and a day. I want to know what's... No, grace sufficient for this. But what if this happens? Well, then grace sufficient for that. We want to know on the other side what joys and surprises and trials and tribulations await, what battles await. Whatever it is, sufficiency of grace, a strength for our weakness. So for our sister here, who's just a little bit older than I was when I was baptized in November of 1977, by that man right there who's visiting here today. Long time ago, many years ago, there is the joyful promise that belongs to the children of God, Molly, the grace that saved the grace which forgave is the grace that will strengthen. And it is the grace that will bring you all the way home. Let's pray and let's ask God's help and blessing. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this time in your word. And we do pray that you would own it and bless it and use it for the good of your people and for the drawing in of those who are lost. We thank you, Father, for these rich promises that are ours in Jesus. And we pray this in his name.